Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Languages are going to remain or go back to being the preserve of people going to independent schools, uh, of people whose families can afford can afford extra tuition and so forth. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, art and society. I'm Stephanie Boland, head of Digital at Prospect, and this week we are not recording from the heart of Westminster. Um, We're recording from my kitchen and I think Steve Bloomfield's bedroom. It's kind of hard to tell over Skype. Steve, hello. (laughs) Hello, yes, I'm recording from uh, the spare room uh, here in uh, my house in in East London. So we're sort of doing, we're we're both in London, but just in different parts of it um, and nowhere near Westminster. Yeah, so this week we'll be talking to academic John Gallagher about Britain's crisis in language learning. For such a global nation, why is it so few of us actually know a second language, especially compared to our continental peers? John is an academic in languages and history and has a particular interest in language learning. He's written books on language education in early modern England and presents shows about history for the BBC and speaks, I have to say, far too many languages himself. Steve, I don't know about you, but down here in coronavirus lockdown, I have guiltily downloaded Duolingo again. I'm not sure if you're trying to brush up on anything. (laughs) Um, I haven't done Duolingo again yet, but that's probably sort of uh, on my list of things once we're into like, you know, day three or day four of uh, of the lockdown. Um, yeah, as you say, we're probably for the next few episodes, I imagine, going to be trying to record at least this part of the podcast remotely. We do have uh, lots of great interviews already lined up, like the one you did with John uh, a couple of weeks ago that were recorded in uh, far more salubrious surroundings, you know, a, an actual proper studio for a start. Yes, and we'll have a few bits of coronavirus-related things coming up on the podcast over the next few weeks, but I think we figure people need a distraction, just something interesting to listen to as much as anything else when um, when you're stuck in your homes or at least away from your office. Yeah, there'll probably be a little bit of a, a little bit of coronavirus, but I think just like with the the website and the magazine, we're trying to make sure there's a good combination of really interesting pieces about the crisis that's happening right now, but also other things as well that are happening in the world because um, it isn't just this disease that's uh, uh, that is this happening right now, um, and it's important that we've got a bit of a mix. So thinking a bit more about the um, the question John's going to raise with us, and we'll hear a lot about how he has 
of Alter's approach to language learning and also the research he's doing on the different ways people have learned in the past. Did you study languages at school? So, yeah, I did French and German at school. And this is, I think, I hope this says more about the British education system than my talent. Uh, but I got an A for German, despite not really being able to speak it. Um, and I had a German teacher who was very, very nice. But when I said to her that I was considering taking German A-level, she said, don't bother. So it's, you know, maybe that's just the, the comprehensive system in Birmingham in the 1990s. But I think it perhaps is a reflection of how seriously we take languages, um, that it's not seen as crucial. And even when we do do the GCSE, it's actually, you know, it doesn't actually make you necessarily able to speak the language uh, what about you did you uh, do languages at school well steve as you know i went to an all-girls grammar school so yeah i did loads of this stuff i did um french german and latin um none of which i was brilliant at i'm not a natural language learner at all and it's interesting you say that about learning in schools and not kind of learning to speak or learning with fluency because i actually only became even vaguely confident in trying to pick up languages um, a lot later on. I did a master's degree and then a PhD and there was lots of travel involved in that. The area of literature I was working on was from a time where people did speak multiple languages and integrated different languages, European languages into their writing. So I had to pick things up, um, spent time overseas and it was then I actually became far better at German than I'd ever been when I, like you, got my A at GCSE. I think that's the thing. It's like it's going somewhere else. Living in another country is always going to be something that um, improves your languages. When I was based in Nairobi and traveling also quite a lot into Central Africa, my French got a lot better than when I was, you know, trying to learn it in a classroom in Birmingham. Uh, likewise, you know, I found it a lot easier to pick up Swahili when I was living in Nairobi than in the few months before I moved to Kenya, um, trying to learn it with whatever the whatever the Duolingo was back in the mid 2000s. But there was definitely a pro the Rosetta Stone, I think, maybe. Um, and yeah, did not find it as easy as I did when I actually when I actually got there. But yeah, it is one of those things that you have to, you really have to be somewhere to get immersed in language. And I think certainly for people, you know, in the UK, because so many people around the world do speak English, then you're not forced to learn other languages in the way that other people might be. Because even when you go somewhere, there will almost always be someone that, that speaks your language. It doesn't sort of force you to sort of, you know, jump off the cliff and, and try to learn it. I think that's so true. And if you've grown up as an English speaker in England, as, as, as I did, there's also a weird embarrassment around trying it, I think, which is so funny when you think about, you know, even just schools in London where we live, where so many of the young people there now are bilingual and, and grew up bilingual. Um, I think for a lot of Brits who are first language English speakers and maybe didn't get good at a second language, you know, people joke about English people going overseas and just kind of speaking English, but louder to try and communicate with people who, um, who speak another language. And obviously part of it is just, you know, quite rude to do. But I think there's also a, um, a fear of getting it wrong. And it's only when you land in that situation and you go, actually, yeah, I do need to communicate with people um, that the, 
the, the urgency of needing to get through your day-to-day life overtakes the embarrassment, as it were. I think you're right. Um, shall we hear from uh, from John, who knows even more about this than you and I? Yes, a lot more than either of us. Um, thank you, Steve. And yes, we'll be talking to John Gallagher about Britain's language learning crisis. Welcome back to the Prospect interview, where I'm joined in the heart of Westminster by John Gallagher. John, hello. Hi, Steph. Hi. So your book, Learning Languages in Early Modern England, has been out for a little while now. Mm-hmm. Um, give us the sort of top line of what you've written about. Yeah. So for me, the top line was that... Uh, In the 16th century, English is not a global language. It's not a language that's widely known outside of England. Uh, One of my favourite authors of the time, a teacher, translator, lexicographer called John Florio, um, he writes uh, in the 1570s that English is a language that will do you good in England, uh, but past Dover it's worth nothing. Uh, And when I first came across that phrase, it kind of transformed how I thought about the period because I was used to thinking about this kind of golden age of Elizabethan literature um, and Elizabethan language. So English in the 16th century didn't have anywhere near the same power and purchase uh, that it does today. So what I wanted to do with the book was to start thinking about how English speakers actually learnt foreign languages, how they got past the language barriers of early modern Europe, an incredibly multilingual time and place, um, to, to think about you know, who was teaching languages, how people were learning, the methods they were using, but also what they were doing with the language they learnt, and what uses people actually put competence to. So that kind of started me off on my journey. And one of the things that sort of leads you to is thinking about space and place I really like that you open with that quote about Dover because a lot of your book is located in London and around London but shows a huge variety in different parts of the city and how languages arise are discussed I'm rambling a little bit, but there's a, there's a big range there, isn't there? I think that's absolutely true. I remember uh, many years ago when I was a master's student and started thinking about these topics, um, I came down to London, um, and I didn't know London very well at the time, and I came down to London with a map of what I was calling Italian London uh, from the 16th century because I knew where my Italian teachers lived. Uh, I knew where French immigrants lived, so around Threadneedle Street, Liverpool Street, uh, Bishopsgate. It's this kind of east end of London, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. So, and, and kind of clustered around the walls, you have these big communities of you know, French-speaking, Italian-speaking, and Dutch-speaking immigrants. They have their churches nearby as well. Um, and walking that on foot was an incredible experience and got me thinking a little bit about kind of the linguistic geography of the city. And that's something that I tried to delve into a bit more in the book. So, for instance, thinking about... Um, St. Paul's Churchyard, which is the heart of the book trade uh, in early modern London. When I say early modern, I mean 16th and 17th century London. If you want to buy uh, a book to learn a language, you'll probably go to St. Paul's Churchyard. While you're there, you'll realise that a bunch of teachers, so people like uh, one of my favourites is a chap called Claudius Holliband. Uh, he's a French teacher, real name Claude de Saint-Léon. Uh, he calls himself Claudius Holliband to make himself a bit more English. He sets up a school right there. 
uh, in the churchyard. So you've got already a kind of polyglot space. And then as the 17th century goes on, you see, and what I managed to do a little bit was to track French teachers through the city. And as Soho and the West End begin to be more built up and begin to attract more and more, particularly new French migrants, you see people setting up schools and classes there. So there's a kind of gradual shift of language learning across the city in the period. But I would say that it's also not just a London story. And even though it's sometimes harder to pick out or to find in the archives what's going on outside of London, it's incredibly rewarding and interesting to do so. One of my favourite documents of the book is the exercise book uh, of a 10-year-old Yorkshire girl called Barbara Slingsby. Uh, And she is learning French. And on the left-hand column, there are phrases in English written by her teacher. And on the right-hand column, there are her attempts uh, to translate those phrases into French. And it's a wonderful snapshot, um, not just of a young woman learning the language, but also of someone very, very far from the kind of metropolitan centre of London. I remember coming across in the West Yorkshire Archive Services. uh, So I now live in Leeds, uh, so there has to be a Yorkshire fact a manuscript Italian phrase book uh, kept by a man called John Armitage who lived in Kirkley, so not very far uh, from Leeds at all. And what he had done or what he'd had someone do for him, and I'm still a little baffled as to why, is that he had bought an Italian phrase book um, and then copied it out by hand into his own manuscript. But these little moments outside of kind of the metropolitan centre give a sense of language learning as not just a kind of, not just a London thing, even though London itself is so multilingual and so interesting. Tell us a little bit more about the types of people who would be learning languages, because I can imagine when many of us think back to what language learning might be like in that period, we would be surprised perhaps to hear about a 10-year-old Yorkshire girl um, picking up her French. Is there a big range of types of people who who take these classes by these books. Absolutely. And I think you're dead right that people go into this research often expecting a certain kind of language learner. And that language learner is there, right? The elite male um, student. Um, And you get, you know, one of my uh, favourite bits of recent research involved me chasing a, a young man called John North who learns Italian in the 1570s and 1580s um, and I was working with his diary which he writes in Italian keeps a record of his travels but also of his kind of post-gap year life in London where he's you know studying Italian and French he's buying Italian fruits and vegetables he's wearing Italian clothes so I became fascinated by him and he very much was the kind of elite man about town who's trying to learn a language that has a lot of prestige and that allows him to read Renaissance literature and that allows him to kind of show off a little bit. But one of the things that I found was that if you start to look at the manuals and the phrase books that are being written uh, in this period, you realise that they're addressing a much broader constituency of language learners. It's possible, of course, to find a lot of women as language learners in this period. And many of them, like Barbara Slingsby, are from quite high up the social scale. But one of the things that you see, for instance, in the 17th century is a real explosion here in London and later beyond of boarding schools run by, often run by French immigrant women for young women from London uh, and further afield. So people who come in uh, from the shires and and board uh, in a French-speaking boarding school, uh, effectively. You also see language learning materials that are targeted at all kinds of different social groups. So you will find materials for merchants to learn how to trade, materials for apprentices. Uh, Claudius Hollyband writes an Italian phrase book where he includes a dialogue that shows you how to bind yourself to a master. And so if you're an apprentice in search of a master, here's how you can do that in Italian. But you also get beyond the world of phrase books, you pick up these echoes or moments in the archive where you come across people who 
are learning languages in interesting ways for interesting reasons. Maybe they're not who you expect or where you expect. So I've come across in the uh, in the archive of the House of Lords, don't ask me why it's there, there is a letter from an Irish priest in Spain um, in the mid-17th century. And at the back of the letter, what this priest has done is listed a bunch of phrases in English and Spanish. And they're clearly the phrases that he's using. And they include things like, you know, I am a poor Irish priest. Uh, Give me some bread for God's sake. And he's clearly going around begging and he has worked up enough Spanish to be able to beg for what he needs. You come across a language learning manual as a great French one from the early 17th century, written by a soldier who claims that he's written it up during the breaks in campaigning uh, on the continent. And he's come back to England uh, and is now selling on his materials. And so you get all of these. And then two last ones. There's a little couple of mentions, and I'm dying to do more on this, um, about it being common practice for people in certain southern towns, at places like Plymouth, um, to swap their kids, to send their kids over to places like Nantes or La Rochelle uh, to live with families and to learn languages. There's a little bit of evidence uh, in English archives of this happening, and we're not talking here about um, lords and ladies. We're talking about you know, families and trades. And then I guess the last group that really amazed me, uh, and they don't show up as much in the, in the book, but I've written about them elsewhere, um, are English speakers who are taken captive and brought to North Africa in the period. Um, and some of whom return, some of whom write narratives about their own captivity, some dubiously believable uh, some of the time. Uh, but one of the things that they often talk about are the languages that they used and the languages that they learned. So sometimes they use Spanish or Italian if they have it already, but they'll often learn um, what's called the Mediterranean lingua franca, which is a pidgin language kind of made up of bits of Italian and Spanish romance languages, but also with vocabulary taken from Greek and Turkish and a number of other languages. And some of them learn Arabic as well and write about their experience of picking up the many languages uh, of North Africa. So there's an incredibly diverse set of constituencies of language learners. It's not just the guy in the nice velvet suit. And that diversity is really reflected in the form of these different guides and manuals and exercise books that you focus on, isn't it? One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the difficulty of tracking what was in some senses an oral culture through written ephemera, because you stress that a lot of language learning was done out loud. Yeah, this was the, the challenge for me, was that the more I read language learning materials, the more I realised that they were so concerned with questions of voice and accent. But because all that remains to us is text, the challenge for the historian is to try and, is to try and rebuild that. And I really started to think that we'd missed a trick um, to an extent. I think that a lot of historical accounts of language learning had been more textual. They had thought about people becoming translators. They thought about people learning languages to read literary texts. And those are so important at the time. But when you start coming across things like Italian language materials, uh, so I came across a phrase book in the uh, university library in Cambridge, uh, where someone has very carefully marked in uh, the stresses in Italian words. And if you ever try and speak Italian, if you don't know where the stresses fall, you're going to totally mangle it. Um, and if you read it on the page, you wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, and this was clearly someone reading in order to be able to pronounce. Similarly, I found it, I think we're you know, in a uh, uh, again, in the University Library in Cambridge, uh, a French textbook where someone has very carefully written phonetic 
uh, representations uh, of words into their books. So it's clear that people are reading these things in order to read aloud. One of my very favourite books of that kind uh, is by a French refugee, a guy called Jacques Bellot, who comes to London in the latter half of the 16th century. Uh, and in, I think, 1586, he publishes this book, which is actually aimed at French speakers, newly arrived refugees from the religious conflicts uh, of the continent. It's a manual for them to learn English because he says that he knows what an upsetting experience it is to be, as he says, refugiate in a strange country and not knowing the language. And what he does in this textbook is that he puts it in three columns where he's got material in English, material in French, and then material written so that if you read it out loud as a French person, it will sound like English. It's kind of a phonetic rendering of English for a French learner. And it's an incredible kind of pointer. For me, it was a clue showing just how important being able to speak was because people cared so much about correct accent and correct expression. And I've tried to dig into that uh, a little more. One of the things that, one of the sources that I found most interesting around that was looking at the accounts of travellers, because this is a constituency of learners who are pretty well represented in the archive. Now they skew rich and they skew male, so there's any number of issues with that, but they have left us quite a lot of records of their day-to-day practices and what they're actually getting up to. One writer on travel in the mid-17th century, James Howell, has all of this advice for the traveller and talks constantly about how much they need to keep an ear open um, to what's going on around them. He says that when they stop in a town and they take a room at an inn, they should take one of the rooms where the windows open onto the street and um, so they can hear the accents, they can hear the cries of the people in the street outside and that's the way they learn the language. Uh, another traveller at the end of the 17th century, William Bromley, one of the things he does in the towns that he visits is he notes down what beggars say in the street and how that differs from town and city to city. And there's that kind of interest. You get people in their notebooks and their diaries and their letters who are taking down the jokes they hear and the ballads they listen to, phrases that people drop into conversation. And you get, I think if you read these, you really get a sense of uh, an oral world uh, of language learning. And it's that that was so totally fascinating to me. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quite striking hearing you say all of that coming at it from a contemporary perspective as a as an English woman. It's 
January 31st as we're recording this. We are recording on mm-hmm. Brexit Day. Um, and we've run pieces on the Prospect website, which we'll, we'll link underneath the podcast, about the crisis in language learning in this country recently, which is both becoming more divided along class lines, but also there seems to be a real anxiety about methodology and how you should be learning languages, and maybe we're doing that wrong. And it's quite refreshing to hear you talk about all of these different ways you could potentially be learning. Do you sort of look at how we feel about languages today and find find it easy to <laughs> to draw parallels with your research? Or? I suppose I do, even though you know I don't always want to, and I don't you know I don't like to just bang the drum and say you know it was ever thus. Um, but there are striking resonances. You know there are uh, there are dialogues in the phrase books which involve English people shouting at people who clearly don't understand them continue to use English. You know, these moments of, um, you know, moments of incomprehension or unwillingness to learn languages. Um, there are 17th century sceptics about the virtue of language learning. But I think something that really, I, I guess, inspired me um, to an extent was the, you know, as you say, that, that diversity of methods, but also to find in the past at a time when maybe I'd expected something much more rigid and rote learning based, to find a kind of language learning that is so oral, that is so sociable, that demands meeting people, speaking to people, listening to voice and trying to absorb everything you can. I found that really exciting. The other question that comes to me insistently is, you know, is there use or value in looking at a period when English is a minority language and looking at a period when English is marginal and, and looking at what people have to do then? And I think that maybe we are so used to being speakers of a global language um, as English speakers, that it is so easy to forget the sheer labour that goes into being able to make yourself understood. Um, and I think that that's very, very easy to do um, in contemporary contexts. People would be very quick to criticise language learners. And English speakers can often be very quick uh, to criticise English learners. Whereas, you know, in certain other languages, if you show up and you've made even a modicum of effort, you're kind of a conquering hero. People are so delighted to hear you even having a go. Um, and I think that's very interesting. I think there are these kind of power questions built in. But I think you're right to raise the crisis in language learning today. Um, I work at a university, I work at the University of Leeds, and I have incredible colleagues uh, in the languages who teach imaginatively and brilliantly. But they will tell you that the diminished place of language and languages in the school system here is really hammering languages departments up and down the country. And that there are unhelpful ideologies out there. The idea that a language is somehow useless. I mean, we saw just last week the University of Sunderland uh, is closing uh, its modern languages programmes and moving to uh, what they call, I think, a career-focused curriculum. And the idea that particularly, and we say this on January 31st, we say this as the UK is about to exit the EU, the idea that the ability to speak foreign languages is somehow not useful for careers, that it's not somehow a desperate national need, is deeply strange to me. Whether there are any clear lessons, I think I say in the book that, you know, I don't think there are direct parallels or uh, there's no menu from the early modern period for the languages crisis here. But it maybe prompts a couple of thoughts. I think you're right, though, to to talk about class and language learning today uh, in the UK. And something that's really struck me, as I have, as a clumsy Irishman, attempted sometimes to wade into these discussions. And what I really hadn't realised and was really brought home to me in some of these discussions is the extent to which 
discussion of and criticism of what some might call, you know, a kind of English uh, kind of monoglot tendency is an incredibly emotive subject. You know, I'd expect me to be emotionally involved in it, but people often, I think, find it difficult to to see these discussions as anything other than a personal attack. You know, what are you saying about the fact that I, you know, don't speak uh, another language or something like that? And while I understand that to an extent, um, I think that sometimes it stops the debate and it stops the discussion and it makes it a lot harder to talk about systemic problems, one of which is the massive issue of class, where it looks as though today we are moving ever more towards a situation where languages are going to remain or go back to being the preserve of people going to independent schools, uh, of people whose families can afford can afford extra tuition and so forth. A very last thing on that, though, is that when the debate is framed that way, uh, it seems done in a way that forgets the huge communities of multilingual people um, across this country who often have migration backgrounds, many, many people and families and communities of colour in this country who are joyfully and brilliantly multilingual, and many of whom are themselves working class. And I think that one of the things that's sad to me, um, as someone who's now embarking on a study of migration and language learning in the 16th and 17th century, is the way that those voices and those people sometimes get erased uh, from an idea of Englishness or Britishness that is monoglot, um, but also monocultural. I'm really glad you brought that up, and it's really striking to hear you talk about it, knowing that you do come from Ireland. I can tell from your coat lapel that you are a fluent <laughs> Irish speaker. Yeah. So were you, were you brought up bilingual, or...? Was it schooling or was it, did you kind of come to languages right, So I should explain the lapel. Uh, is, uh, Steph has recognised that on my coat uh, I'm wearing the fonia. Fonia is Irish for ring. Um, it's just a very, very small thing that indicates that um, I am willing, ready, nay, excited to speak Irish uh, to anyone uh, who uh, who spots it and who clocks what it is. Now, I've yet to have, actually, I think you're the first person here um, who has noted and noticed it. Um, but it's, I think it's great to have it as an invitation. It's a very recent thing. I've, I just bought one when I was home uh, for Christmas. My own background is uh, that I was educated through Irish until I was 11. Uh, so my primary schooling was entirely through Irish. I went to a preschool, play school that was also Irish language. So it was around me and it was kind of a, a daily language for me for about eight or nine years of my life. My mother is an Irish teacher and speaks really stunning Irish, infinitely better than anything that I could pretend to. And my grandfather was a journalist who worked through Irish. So he uh, actually presented a bilingual talk show uh, called Tromagus Aetrum, which means heavy and light. And there's a couple of videos. Uh, his name is Liam Amarachu. Um, and is a couple of videos still on YouTube where you can see him presenting it. And one of the things he was, uh, he was involved in the, the, the revival of Irish in the 1960s. And what he tried to do, and something that really, I hope, is rubbed off on me, is that in his show, he tried to use Irish to include people of every level of ability. So there will be people in the audience or guests who will have, you know, we say an Irish couple of which means a few words. Um, and for them, they would get the chance to use those, but the conversation would switch to English when it would be a little more difficult or complex. And my grandfather would sometimes paraphrase or explain things to the audience in the language that wasn't being used in the discussion. So it's really a really, really beautiful thing to watch. 
So there is a kind of, there's an Irish language background in my family. Uh, my father's family were from the Donegal Gaeltacht, so from the Irish-speaking area in the northwest of Ireland. My great-uncle uh, was a Vincentian priest, um, used to give mass in Irish, spoke really stunning Irish as well, although not the variety that I speak and uh, many Irish learners. I was going to say Donegal is not very different. Easy, uh, to understand, um, but it is truly truly beautiful um so yeah my my background is that i had that education and i had that privilege and i loved it and in many ways even the longer i spend away from home the more that becomes an important part of my own identity that's what they always say isn't it once you travel you start to become ever more your 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 home self (laughs) so are we allowed to bring up the um the show you put on at christmas was it reading the back of a packet of salmon or something because you've gone and learned other languages since haven't you you're quite a um, a, a keen learner of languages shall we say so steph follows my instagram which i'm happy to report is private oh is it so we can cut this so happily this was not broadcast to uh, to the wider world um we had uh, some beautiful smoked salmon at christmas uh and my younger sister herself an incredible linguist um decided to video me reading out um, the instructions or the descriptions of the salmon on the back because it had, you know, they had the Italian one and they had the German one and the French one and I was marked for life by a French teacher um, who's actually acknowledged in the book, Louise Curtin, and taught me French at school. I was marked for life when she explained that the way to speak correctly accented French, if you have real difficulty with it, is to do a comedy French impression and work backwards from that. So I tend to, in speaking other languages, I think probably do wildly exaggerate. Really Yeah, really going for it. Um, kind of hello, hello levels of, uh, of French. So terribly offensive. And I apologise to all speakers of French uh, listening. But it was enormous fun. So it got to kind of do a little bit of a polyglot performance. But yeah, I've, I've been very lucky too. Um, uh, I studied French and German at school and then went to university where I studied history and French. It's one of the reasons that I'm a huge supporter of and defender of degrees that are these kind of two subject degrees with a language. So history and a language, for instance, absolutely made me the historian I am today. And then I picked up Italian because I worked in a modern languages bookshop uh, and needed something to do uh, and decided that I would start plucking things off the shelves. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to kind of be exposed to um, and to pick up these these various languages at various times, started to use them as a historian and haven't really stopped. And then the most recent uh, for the next project, I've been learning Dutch. And because we're going to Oslo tomorrow, I am going to uh, see if I can uh, work on my extremely basic Norwegian, and I think that will be a lot of fun as well. So, I mean, I can't deny that this is something I get immense pleasure from, uh, and I, I really, yeah, I love to do it. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily bring that up to humiliate you, or not, or not, not solely to humiliate you, <laughs> because it, because there is a really tremendous joy in having a go at this and even if you think your French accent is as you say a low low levels of offensive um, I think sometimes those of us who aren't um, great linguists or maybe didn't grow up learning other languages feel quite intimidated by the idea that you might get it wrong or somebody might laugh at you or you're going to inconvenience somebody who let's face it when you travel in Europe they're far more likely to have better English than you have French or German mm-hmm. say but there's a, a fun in having having a go isn't there? I think you're so right I mean I think that's something that in Britain and Ireland I think in the Anglophone world generally but I see it in a very pronounced way here um, 
people are obsessed with an idea of fluency. And I think that people think that there's not any real point or that it, it might somehow be embarrassing um, or a failure if you were to attempt to speak another language without the ability to do absolutely everything in it. And that's why I'm a really great um, believer in just having a go, having a crack, getting a phrase book on the, for the flight um, and trying to use a few words. Because I think that sometimes people think about language learning in terms of the end goal. And they think, well, if I start learning French today, maybe in four years I'll be able to have a full conversation um, and I'll be able to do my whole holiday in French. What they don't think is, you know, if I get Duolingo on my phone today and start working on Fran- working in French, you know, by the end of the month, I'll be able to read a couple of basic sentences. I might be able to send an email of a line or two and you can build and build and build from that. I think, you know, not to bring everything back to the book, but uh, I think some of these ideas actually have their roots in the 16th and 17th centuries. And one of the things that I tried to chart in the book is how some of these immigrant teachers who show up, and particularly teachers of French, are not just teaching the language to English speakers, they're also building an incredibly strong cultural sense of what French is and what good French is. So this is a period when French is gradually replacing Latin as the international lingua franca, the thing that you'll speak at royal courts, things where your monarchs might write to each other in French, treaties will be signed, written in French. Um, And French is really, really on the rise. Um, And what you get in London, so in the Restoration, so from 1660 onwards, you get a group of French uh, or Swiss teachers who show up, and one of the ways in which they compete with each other, um, you know, they compete by getting the poshest students and getting the best recommendations, but they compete by writing books where they lay out their ideas about French, and they make claims about the kind of French that each one teaches. So one will say, well, my French is the very best because I grew up uh, and learned the language in Blois, in the Loire Valley. So, that, and that is, everyone knows that that is where the very best French is spoken. Another will say, well, actually, I am daily in correspondence with people at the court uh, in France. So I'm daily receiving letters and news from people who speak the very best language. They speak the language of the king. Um, one teacher who I followed a little bit in the 17th century, a guy called Claude Moget, um, actually travels back to Paris uh, for a year or two because he says that what he's trying to do is to polish his French, to make sure that he's a native speaker, but to make sure that the French he speaks is as modish um, and as fashionable as it might be. And one of the things that these people are selling is anxiety and insecurity. They recognise that there is money to be made in making English people worry that their French will get them laughed at, that they'll speak with the wrong accent, that they'll use a word that's now out of fashion. And so... In this kind of dogfight between different teachers, setting up ideas of what it means to speak good and prestigious French, um, there's an idea of what a successful language learner sounds like, but also of the stakes of failure. And I think that's something that we've really internalised today um, and that I think we could do well to shake off. It's so strongly resonant of how we export English as well, isn't it? I always remember learning German um, and I speak quite quite Swiss German because I spent time in Zurich, which is a real problem. You're not a proper German speaker if you <laughs> if you speak Swiss German. But really, laughing the first time I heard about the idea, you would go post it something on Facebook. So you have what they call Denglish, where English words come in, and the idea is it's quite fashionable to to bring English in, um, which perhaps brings us to a figure we really can't finish this podcast without talking about which is Shakespeare. Mm, the man himself. The big man. Yes. Well, what should we say? Where should we start? 
Well, you're, you're the early modernist. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know anything before 1920, John. <laughs> um, yeah, Shakespeare is hard to get away from here. Um, and one of the reasons is that Shakespeare is kind of the poster boy for the genuinely massive linguistic changes that are happening in English um, at the end of the 16th and the start of the 17th century, where you're seeing vast numbers of new words appearing um, in the language. Now, there's an old saw, this kind of idea that, you know, Shakespeare is the great inventor of words, the great coiner of words. Um, and he does coin really interesting words. He does kind of uh, add new things into the language. Um, but it's this is happening in the context of a, a more general expansion in English vocabulary. And one of the places where that's happening is in translations. So all the way through the 16th century, you have these debates by English speakers about English. Um, and the worry is that English just isn't quite up to snuff by comparison, certainly uh, with the great ancient languages of Latin, Greek and Hebrew, but also with other languages like particularly Italian and French, both of which have had or are having very self-conscious um, debates about language purity and language development and how to have a language that truly reflects the genius of the nation. Um, and English feels like it's kind of scrambling to catch up, but is the victim of a lot of um, you know, chauvinism. A lot of Romance language speakers think that this is kind of a, a brutal Germanic language out on the edge of Europe. Why would anyone want to learn it? Um, while the English themselves have a kind of a strong linguistic inferiority complex. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of it's, it's also outdated. It's <laughs> no relevance at all. Um, but there are, so there are these debates about well, how are we going to fix it. One of the things that people are doing as they translate texts is borrowing in foreign words. Obviously, this causes ructions and there are constant complaints um, from you know, from the early 16th century at least, I think even before, there's a whole medieval context which I won't get into, um, but right up to people like Samuel Johnson uh, in his dictionary, Jonathan Swift, um, complaining about these people who are bringing in what they see as unnecessary French words um, and stuffing the language with them. What I think is happening is, and what I think is behind the kind of Shakespearean moment, this kind of expansion in the English vocabulary, this kind of growing pride in the expressive power of English, which is tempered with a certain anxiety as well. I think that one of the things that we sometimes miss is that oral context for it and is what's actually going on in the streets and in conversations. Because you see in the late 16th century um, a big influx of migrants. You see, um, you know, Dutch-speaking and French-speaking migrants fleeing various wars or coming as economic migrants from the continent. And, you know, places like London and Norwich that have substantial migrant populations. You see again in the 1680s, um, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes by Louis XIV, a lot of French Protestants flee uh, and wind up in England and a number in Ireland as well. So, different languages become very present, they become very audible. So it's not just that people are reading books and bringing in words into the language. So someone like Shakespeare isn't kind of just kind of picking through an Italian dictionary or kind of, you know, uh, you know reading a translation from French and deciding to bring in a new word. Um, if he's doing this, or whoever is, whoever's helping to add these words, they're doing it in conversation with a profoundly polyglot kind of urban context, um, if that makes sense, which is not to diss Shakespeare, um, which I sometimes get accused of doing, that's not to, you know, that's not to go after the bard. Um, I, Shakespeare was my way into this period. Um, and I read Hamlet as a, a pupil at school. And it was like seeing another world. I couldn't believe what I was reading. And I just was so desperate to know more. So, and that was linguistically, but also historically to try and understand what was going on um, underneath it. 
And we should say if people want to find out more about your work on Shakespeare and language learning in general, and indeed on a variety of other topics, they can find you online, your books out with Oxford University Press. Um, you have a BBC radio documentary we can link to below. Are there any other places people should be looking you up? <laughs> uh, they can find me on Twitter uh, as Early Modern John. Um, and yeah, so there's a there's a BBC TV documentary which is not currently uh, it's just gone off iPlayer, but feel free to protest outside Broadcasting House <laughs> so that they bring it back, uh, which is on Shakespeare and language change. Um, but there's also a Radio Three uh, documentary uh, about the history of the tongue, uh, one of my many interests, which I hope people might uh, have a look at. And they can find me on the University of Leeds website if they'd like to know more uh, about the academic side and see some of the papers and research uh, that I've been working on. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. And that's all from us this week. Thanks for joining us again on the Prospect interview, and we will see you again next week, potentially from another series of rooms within our own houses. If you did enjoy the Prospect interview, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Rebecca Lou was our producer this week. Goodbye, and see you next time. <laughs>